I love the audience already. <laughs> Welcome to Liars League, where writers write, actors read, the audience listens, and everyone wins. Now, my name's Tim Aldrich, I'm one of the Liars, and I haven't actually presented here for some time. I'm delighted to be back. And I was in paper chase on Sunday and saw an awful lot of Christmas cards. No! Which no, only mean know. one thing. That it's time for the Liars League Halloween Spooktacular. <laughs> before I go on, uh, who's been here before? Hand, show of hands, please. Excellent. So some, some regulars, but also some newbies. Who's new? I'm a virgin. You're a virgin. Oh. I'm a virgin. I'm a virgin. I'm a sacrifice you. I'm a sacrifice, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be for the second half. <laughs> um, we also have a number of actors uh, over here. Actors over there. We've got some... Uh, writers, hands up if you're a writer. What's a nine? Very good. So we have not four, not five, but six spectacular tales of terrible toil and tremendous trouble for you this evening. But I do ask that so that the actors are not disturbed, you make sure those infernal devices in your pockets or in your bags are turned or to cycle, whichever. If I hear a mobile phone going off, you may have to come on stage and sing the theme tune, Sabrina. <laughs> I will hold you to it, I promise. And uh, just for those who were asking earlier about the uh, loyalty cards on each table, amid the suitably Halloween-y sweets and our programmes, we also have some Liars League postcards. If you want to take one of those with you when you get five of those, that's right, Katie, isn't it? Four. 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 You get your fifth visit to Liars League for absolutely free. Isn't that a bargain? I must say, Liars League hasn't charged any more in the whole of the 11, 12 years that we've been doing Liars League, has uh, it? Well, we actually did, we did bump it <laughs> nine years ago. Oh, it was nine years. From two pounds to five pounds. This millennium? No, wait, hang on. This decade, we haven't charged any more. Such a bargain. Such a bomb. So, you also recognise that I am not Liam Hogan. Um, he was last seen with a crucifix, cloves of garlic, a wooden stake, and a ticket for Carpathian Mountains. We hope he'll be back by December. But you don't want to hear any more of this. What you want to hear are the stories, and three in the first half. The first of which is An Odd Fish by Lisa Farrell, and it'll be read by Josie Charles. Lisa lived with her husband, sons, and two black. In a previous life, she studied creative writing at UEA and worked as a bookseller for seven years. Now she writes freelance for Fantasy Flight Games. Read her occasional tweets at LisaMRC8. Josie recently graduated from an MA in acting at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama after a BA in English at University College London. She is a member of the National Youth Theatre, performing in The Fall by James Fritz at the Salbert Playhouse and The Tempest at Theatre Royal Northampton. She also writes and is currently making her first short film. Josie. Lisa 
went with the rest down to the sea, to mended nets and patched boats and stories of the night before. The sun was bright, so they strode bare to the waist, muscles flexing as they pushed their crafts into the foam, laughing at each other's jokes. The children went too, clambering sure-footed and long-legged over the rocks towards the cliffs to see what treasures the waves had deposited in the rock pool. The braver ones might find those cliffs or dive into the sea for pearls, their mothers scolding and praising those that returned with a prize. I retreated into the cool shade of the trees while the other women set to their work at the river, gossiping as they scrubbed the scales from yesterday's catch, leaving flesh raw. I cradled useless hands inside long sleeves and hung my head as I passed the others, their gazes slipping over me. Pity is a terrible mercy. So easily it gives way to something worse. My husband's sisters bore the brunt of my work when my wrists swelled and fingers stiffened. Sit with the old women, they said so kindly. Not today. I passed the fire where the old ones huddled inside woolen shells, passed my home that my husband had built from stone and wood with his strong hands, and walked on. Far from the others, on the riverbank, daring the water to swell and carry it away, was the witch's tent. Shaped like her tall hat, shells and stones hung from its supports, weighing it down. They rattled at my approach, though there was no wind. She appeared from behind the tent, a basket on one hip. She smiled her greeting and invited me to sit on the grass with a sweep of her hand. I forced my aching knees to bend and move towards the ground, catching myself on my elbows as my wrists couldn't support my weight. The impact jarred my shoulders and I bit my lip to keep from crying out. The ground was damp and cold. You haven't run out of the salve already, she said, settling easily, bare feet protruding from her patchwork skirt. No, I said. Her feet were pink and smooth like a child's, her nails iridescent like the shells that decorated her home. Red flowers bloomed in her long hair that emerged like sunlight from the shadow of her hat. Ageless, she was, or so the others whispered, older than the sea fresher than a daisy. Some hated her, some feared her, but my husband trusted her, and I trusted him. She cradled the basket in her lap like a precious thing. It was covered with a cloth, and I grew cold, wondering at the contents. The salve soothes the pain, I went on. It lets me sleep, but, but it is not enough. I nodded. I warned you, she said, and so she had, every time. Your curse is a strong one, tied to you by jealous love. It needs a stronger remedy. I am afraid, I said. She said nothing at my answer, but placed the basket on the ground between us. Last time I caught one of these, she said, you rejected my gift. Do not be so quick to judge the creature today. She pulled the cloth aside, revealing the same silver-scaled, long-whiskered beast she produced when I first dared visit her. It was big as a trout, squashed in the basket, its head and tail pushing upwards towards the edges. 
A foul smell like spoiled meat and salt rose from the creature, though I could tell from its glassy black eye that it was a fresh catch. Its swollen body and odd snake-like neck, its gaping mouth, its crooked teeth, these things made me loathe to even touch this so-called remedy. Trust me, she said. This will renew you, make you strong enough to carry. I looked up into her blue eyes, and her lips settled into a knowing smile. She didn't need magic to know my fears. I had been wed nearly a year, and there was no sign of a child. Don't fear change, she said. It wasn't only change I feared, but I pushed my doubts aside. I would do this for my husband, so I could be a true wife to him, and work and give him children. I would do it for him and for myself, stop the pain that coloured everything I did or thought since it arrived on our wedding night. The witch slipped a long knife from her sleeve and pressed it to the fish's underside. The creature wriggled, its tail rising and flopping back as she cut a line across it. It flapped and thrashed as its glistening, viscous innards slid out into the basket. She plucked one fat purple organ from the tangle and cut its ties. Then the creature lay still at last. My heart was fluttering like a bird caught in a trap. Here, she said, this is the only part you need. I held out my palm and she placed it there, wet and surprisingly heavy. I looked to her for reassurance, but she only nodded and smiled, her eyes bright. She watched me closely as I held it near my mouth, trying not to gag at the fierce, acidic smell. Eat it, she said will stop. So I opened my mouth and pushed the thing aside. My stomach roiled as I forced myself to chew the rubbery cure. It burst, releasing some thick juice, and I had to clap my hands over my mouth to keep from spitting it out. The witch's eyes were on me, unblinking. Her lips moved as she recited some spell, but no sound reached my ears. Oil ran down my throat and choked me. I released my hands, but my lips seemed bound together. I fell back on the grass and chewed fiercely, stomach clenching and heaving as I tried to force it down. Suddenly, she took my hands and pulled me upright, and I winced at the touch that should have sent spasms of pain up both arms. There was no pain. I opened my mouth and gasped for breath. The thing was gone. Inside, the deed was done, and my hands I looked at them. My claws had uncurled. My fingers were straight and smooth and strong. Thank you, I said, and promised her whatever my husband brought back from the sea that day. He would be so pleased, so relieved, so kind to me. That night, I lay easily in his arms, and he touched me without fear of hurting me. I could lie on my side, pressed against him, and my shoulder did not scream at me to move. I could wrap my arms around him without pain. I fell asleep, sure all would be well. I dreamt of dark water. I felt waves lap against my skin like hungry tongues. My body shifted with the tide, and I let it carry me from the beach, under the stars, until the loneliness around me was complete. Only the stars burning above, and waves whispering below to keep me company. I could not see myself but knew I changed. I reached for my face, 
and found whiskers, long and rubbery. I woke and sat up, but my husband was gone. I ran outside. Already the sun blazed down between the branches of the trees. He hadn't woken me, had let me sleep, and I should be working. I could hear the babble of the other women, but I couldn't go to them yet. I ran to the river, where the bank was steep and there was no one to see. I peered down at my face, rippling and shimmering, but I couldn't see the whiskers that I could still feel on my cheeks, those fishy tendrils I'd seen on the creature the day before, above its gaping mouth. I would visit the witch again, tell her my dream, my fears. Then I could shed them, like scales washed away in the river, slipping over the rocks. Once my belly swelled, my husband left boasting each morning. Such a strong boy, he said, to grow so quickly. Such deeds the boy would do. He did not notice how my eyes turned black and my hair silver, or that the skin of my neck wrinkled where that of a fish would part to breathe. I worked alongside the other women, but I was not one of them. I wore a scarf over my hair, kept my eyes cast down. If they saw my fingers grow clumsy, flap uselessly, slip desperately into the cool river water, they said nothing. I blew the candle out at night when he undressed me and put my belly to his ear like a conch shell. He thought he had put a boy inside me, but I knew better. I had taken something else within myself, and it had taken root. I had fish swimming round and round inside me, thousands of tiny gaping mouths. One day, soon, he would discover me. We were both wrong or else the larger fish had eaten the smaller ones, until only one remained. The witch was my only witness. She sucked in a breath as brine leaped from my skin and the creature slid quietly from me. Small for a baby, big for a fish. She patted and rubbed my offspring until he made a choking sound and wailed, shrill and high. She wrapped him in a blanket and placed him in my arms. I did not move. Feed him, she said. I could not bear to touch him. I looked at her and she shook her head at me. The child still wailed. Beyond him I heard the lumbering of the man outside, of my husband, eager to catch a glimpse of his son. They would not cross the threshold while the witch remained. With a sigh, she scooped him up, opening her dress to press him like a familiar to her breast. She sounded disappointed when she sighed, but I saw her smile that flickered with the candlelight. Her eyes remained on the child's face as he quietened and fed. I knew then that he had always been meant for her. Afterwards, she placed him back in my arms. She left, inviting my husband in. He took the bundle from me and stared at the face. He smiled and praised me. She had enchanted him then. He did not see the child's scales and whiskers, its gills and fins. He saw what he wanted to see. Perhaps it was his after all. I had promised the witch what he brought back from the sea that day. He had brought this life with him from the ocean to plant inside me. Some monster from deep below the surface, never meant to see the light. I waited until my husband slept, and then left the little creature, fragile as an egg, in my place beside him. I fled into the night and the world I dreamt of. Black water, fire in the sky. I smelt the salt of the sea and it smelt of some home I had yet to live in. I stepped into the water and the waves came to greet me as I walked, 
pulling me in, numbing my feet and legs before they disappeared. I became free, my body loose, and I swam with my new fins for the first time, on and on until I could not see the shore. I swam further and further still, afraid that otherwise I might float too close to the nets come morning. I wondered if he would raise that odd fish as his own, or would the witch claim it as hers? They might raise it together. I should have listened to the spiteful warning of my husband's sisters when they whispered he was the only man the witch ever loved. by Cassidy Phillips, which will be read by Peter Kenny. Cassidy mucks about with crumbly books for a living, occasionally taking a knife to them, or hitting them with a hammer. One time he found a dead man's fingernails stashed in an archive. It's not a bad old life, really. Peter Kenny has worked for A and BC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and the BBC Radio Drama Company. An award-winning recorder of audiobooks, he's read over 100 titles, everything from Ian M. Banks, Neil Gaiman, and Andres Sapkowski to Jonas Jonasson and Paul O'Grady, from the sublime to the core blimey. Visit <laughs> www.peterkenny.com. Peter. New Tongues by Cassidy Phillips. It is not true to say that the dead have come back. That it has been said, and shall no doubt continue to be said among the panicking classes, is regrettable, but is also rather inevitable. Such pronouncements have a certain romantic appeal, after all, and that is the cornerstone of any good, naive theory. However, these claims are founded on a series of culture-bound misunderstandings which necessarily distort our perception of the matter at hand. Cultural baggage cannot help us here. This is not an occurrence which can be understood by appealing to our knowledge of lurid comics or holy books or late-night movies. It is nothing so easy to digest. The first and most common misapprehension is the assumption that we are discussing some kind of new and heretofore undocumented phenomenon. We are not. The fact of the matter is that said condition has been known of for some time, but it is so slight a thing that most members of society shall not have encountered it. Those whose work brings them into contact with cadavers, however, cadavers in their natural, non-sanitized state, have been reporting this phenomenon since the early 1960s. It is something which is to some extent familiar to paramedics, morticians, hospital orderlies, care home workers, police officers, even end-of-life counsellors, but which taboo and common courtesy dictate is not discussed outside of these professions. For several decades now, masking the effects of nove lingue has been accepted as an everyday part of the mortician's job, that of making cadavers presentable to the general public. 
It is a simple procedure. A topical anaesthetic administered to the trigeminal and hypoglossal nerves, a relaxant injected into the laryngeal muscles. With the correct dosing, these will suppress mechanical activity for long enough that a body can be identified by the next of kin, or put on display for the duration of a funeral, without risk of its causing unusual distress. And these are the only parts of the cadaver which need to be suppressed. The more sensational accounts of this syndrome might imply that the body in toto regains motor function, but I can assure you that it does not. The limbs, the eyes, the genitals, the tips of the fingers all remain quite lifeless, quite inert. No gut motility is ever observed, and an EEG fails to detect any activity save in the nerves already mentioned. The sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems are both demonstrably dead. The only parts affected are the lips, the larynx, the tongue, and the thoracic diaphragm. And the action of the diaphragm is not strong enough to require suppression. Often, the breath it creates is so weak that a voice can barely be heard. Were a mourner to encounter an unsanitized cadaver, they would be less likely to discern words than to hear the thick, dry slapping of its tongue inside the inside of its teeth. A voice, when it is detectable, can take one of several forms. The sound of some voices is best described as a gentle hissing, like a deflating inner tube. Some, particularly from new cadavers, as a soft, slightly rasping, bubbly, bubbling. There's still others as a reedy squeak, like a blade of grass held taut between two thumbs. As you might expect, such variation is largely due to the condition of the larynx and its degree of desiccation. But this does not seem to wholly account for the quality of the sound. It is critical to note that even if the vocal cords are rehydrated and the diaphragm manipulated artificially, that, that is, even if the speech apparatus is restored as much as possible to how it was in life, the voice which comes from the cadaver shall not be mistakable for that of the deceased. This voice is its own distinct entity. I repeat, it is not true to say that the dead have come back because this is not the voice of the person who has died. Sometimes the vocalizations are pitched. They sing in a breathy alto like a choir boy turning to powder. None of these sounds are ever louder than a murmur. In the case of one who has died suddenly, the phenomenon of nove lingue can begin to emerge any time between a few minutes and several hours post-mortem. It most commonly begins as a series of sub-vocalizations, first detectable by electromyograph, later visible graduating to audible sounds, phonemes, and finally, words. Initial vocalizations are frequently clumsy. The movements of the lips, tongue, and vocal folds are poorly coordinated, and the voice will stumble over the simplest syllables. However, over the course of the first week, coordination improves steadily, and a voice, once established, is able to maintain a consistent intelligible and continuous lexical stream for anything up to five months post-mortem, even when the speech apparatus is quite severely degraded. 
The surgical removal of any part of the apparatus does not affect the activity of the remaining parts. Somewhat incredibly, it has been observed by those working in end-of-life care that the emergence of the voice can, in certain circumstances, precede the death of an individual. A patient receiving palliative care and under heavy sedation, or in the final stages of non-aphasic dementia, can sometimes be seen sub-vocalising in their sleep. It is not unheard of for night nurses to report fully vocalised novae lingue phenomena among wards of patients in decline. I have myself stood in the small hours, flanked by the beds of the dying, listening to this humbly susurration. Never have these voices seemed conscious of me or of anything else outside of himself. I feel justified in concluding that not only are these voices not those of the deceased, neither are they something which only comes into being at the moment of death. Rather, the voice is something which is already present within us, and to some degree developed prior to death, something which emerges to take the reins as our own hold and our body weakens. I have not found the voice which emerges from an adult cadaver to become fluent in its speech any more rapidly on average than that which emerges from a child's. From this, one can only infer that both are equally developed at the time of death. The voice is not a hitchhiker in the body, acquired as we approach our final years. It is instead a passenger which has, I suspect, been with us since infancy. I should make a further thing clear. Since 1996, the prevalence of novilingue phenomena in non-neonatal cadavers has been very close to 100%. It shall happen to me, I am sure. It shall almost certainly happen to you. Given the unavoidability of all of this, let us fall back on romanticism. Let us ask the one great and obvious question which remains. If these voices are uttering words, what words do they utter? It was the dream of the Victorian medium to hear speech from the beyond. It was the dream of the apostles to speak in new tongues and be reborn on the other side of death. But if we have any hopes in this regard, then again, we are confounded. I repeat, a novam linguam is not the voice of the dead. Its speech is bound to disappoint any who believe they could learn from it. The vocalizations, while syntactically correct and not without meaning, are without sense. A voice is as likely to speak of the cornflower blue of a long-gone sky as it is to describe a child's impressions of an elderly aunt, the smell of her, the uncanny rubbery largeness of her ears. It is as likely to repeat the names of London's sunken rivers as it is to mutter about the correct care of tropical fish, or to hiss in fury at the grease which cakes a frying pan. These are thoughts that nobody would bother to think, words that nobody would bother to say. They are the speech of something mindless wearing down. The whistling, gurgling, rustling voice of the cadaver births junk utterances in a long, 
slow, relentless exhalation until after months of months of mumbling. One day, it doesn't. And so, science fails me. I have spent decades studying the literature. I have conducted research, published papers as much as funding has allowed, and still I can explain these things on neither a medical nor a teleological level. I can describe the phenomena, but I cannot identify their source. I can describe the speech, but I cannot determine its purpose, if indeed it possesses any. I can outline the history and the development of the condition. I can describe, but I cannot understand why the earth is filled with the babbling dead, with the stumps of tongues singing at their own coffin lids, with the caved-in mouths that whisper of their first kiss, while the rest of the body lies cold. And I do not know what I shall say when my time comes. Theory has been exhausted for me. I cannot answer any of this with theories, only with myth. Only with this. And I present it with no evidence. It is all I can offer, and it has little or no worth. In the time of Asclepius, ascended God, the first healer, the first to deny death, the sick would travel to his temple, would offer prayer and oblation, would drink a draught of poppies and would sleep. And in their dreams, Asclepius would reveal himself, vast and incomprehensible. He would speak and he would work to heal them. And the babble of dreams would be his voice. In antiquity, a dream was a message. It was a vessel for change and for the divine, as our bodies are vessels for us. It was a channel for knowledge and for epiphany. In it, we saw a part of ourselves that our waking life was too small to hold. Something so alien so impossibly mundane as to appear godlike. But we have denied it for so long and in so many ways. This, this is not the world of Asclepius. Babble is only babble. Dreams no longer heal. I believe we have sealed a door in ourselves. And that door holds back an ocean. And the door cannot hold back an ocean. You misunderstand. It is not true to say that the dead before the interval, which is An Esteemed Family Business by Sarah McDermott, which will be read by Rich Keeble. Sarah is a copy editor who moonlights in fiction. Her work has appeared on stage as part of theatre 
503's Rapid Right Response Programme, and she was recently shortlisted for the 2019 Grindstone Literary International Flash Fiction 500 Prize. Rich recently appeared in The Rebel on Gold, which has not been recommissioned, Warren on BBC One, which has not been recommissioned, and Porters on Dave, which has not been recommissioned. Based on this track record, let's hope tonight will not be the last ever edition of Liars League. Rich. <laughs> An esteemed family business by Sarah McDermott. Memorandum from the desk of James Andrews, junior filing clerk at Mitchell, Sons and Candy, solicitors. Dated 25th of September, 1897. Dear Mr. Candy, um, as I was reviewing the quarterly files, I couldn't help but notice that one of our clients, a Mr. Dracula, has bought five or six crumbling old houses in and around London. Some of these properties have been on our books since Mitchell, Sons and Candy was merely Mitchell and Sons. They must be in a dreadful state of disrepair. Surely we could have found them a more suitable range of properties to invest in. Are the firm's partners aware of this curious transaction? Your humble servant, James Andrews. From the desk of Wilfred Candy, Esquire. My dear James, I received your note with interest and am delighted to see you take some initiative in your work. We'll make a lawyer of you in no time, my boy. As to your query, there is nothing curious about Count Dracula. He is a fine fellow and, as you may be aware, a noble of his native Transylvania. I have dealt with him personally in correspondence and have found his English impeccable. He's something of an Anglophile, in fact, and tells me he dreams of strolling through our great city's bustling streets, rubbing elbows with tradesmen and noblemen alike. Over the past few months, the Count has engaged our services in the purchase of a number of exquisite mansions in the capital, some dating back centuries. The buildings in question are filled with character, with excellent transportation links and boundless potential for renovations. <laughs> Kindly make a note of those descriptions, James. <clears throat> there are no crumbling old houses on our roster. <clears throat> Do send my warmest regards to your uncle and your lovely bride. I'm told there are whispers of a new arrival in the Andrews household. Please accept my heartfelt congratulations. I trust that this note has reassured you. Warm regards, Wilfred. From the desk of James Andrews, dated 26th of September, 1897. Dear Mr. Candy, Thank you for your kind words. My uncle is settling into his retirement and reminds me often that your patronage is not to be taken for granted. I hope my dedication to my duty speaks for itself in that regard. 
It's true that my dear Millicent may well be expecting, but our doctor cautions us that much can change in these early days. I must confess, the responsibilities a child will bring are weighing on me. Passing through the market square today, I overheard a group of women discussing a companion of theirs whose son disappeared without warning while playing in the street. An unthinkable loss for a young mother. However, I must direct your attention back to the Dracula account. Since my memorandum of yesterday, I have undertaken some research into the Count's workings. It seems that in recent months his effects were sent to England from Transylvania. The transport ship was wrecked en route to Whitby, leaving no survivors and doing untold financial damage to the shipping firm. Further investigation reveals that one Jonathan Harker, a solicitor working for an Exeter firm, disappeared shortly after visiting the Count's Transylvanian castle. Mr Harker was out of contact with his employer for some time before he was located in a nearby convent, raving about blood and wolves and locked dogs. Given the apparent risks involved in working with the man, might it be prudent to reconsider our association with Count Dracula? Many thanks, James Andrews. From the desk of Wilfred Candy, yes, why? Dear James, may I remind you that we are a legal firm? May I also remind you that every man has a right to fair representation under British law. The most vile of murderers is entitled, after all, to a legal advocate. Count Dracula depends on us. To distance ourselves from so distinguished a client over an accident at sea and an unpleasant home call would be downright negligent. If anything, I dare say it's to our advantage if rival lawyers aren't man enough to do business with the Count. Whatever duty the ailing Mr. Harker was performing, one of our junior lawyers could surely manage it just as well without winding up in some miserable European nunnery. <laughs> we at Mitchell, Sons and Candy are made of sterner stuff, are we not? Best regards, as ever, to the family. Future editions included, of course. And may I advise you to stop listening to gossiping fishwives in the marketplace? <laughs> Just a thought. Chin up, my boy. Wilfred. From the desk of James Andrews, dated the 29th of September, 1897. Sir, I apologise for pressing the issue, but I really do think you should see this. Further research into Count Dracula and his personal history has revealed an alarming and grisly chain of events. Please review the enclosed documents. I swear that if you consider all the facts at hand, even if only briefly, you will be convinced, as I am, of the creature we are dealing with and its true nature. James Andrews. From the desk of Wilfred Candy, Esquire. Andrews. You are employed at Mitchell, Sons and Candy to keep our books, greet our clients, and, should the occasion call for it, 
polish Mr. Lynch's boots. <laughs> you are not employed to ask impertinent questions about poor, beleaguered Count Dracula. You yourself point out the number of tragedies that have surrounded the man in this <laughs> May he not be permitted to retire to his six unique and spacious mansions <laughs> in peace. Let this be my last warning. I expect you to keep your mind focused on your work. Stop wasting the firm's time and money. I should hate to see a promising career in the law be cut off in its infancy over so small a matter. Do not allow this Dracula business to trouble me again. Yours, W. Candy Esquire. From the desk of James Andrews, moments later. <laughs> Mr. Candy, may I ask if you even looked at the file? Had you even taken the time to glance at it, you would surely be convinced that this is no small matter at all. Very well. Let me set the facts out before you as plainly as I can. Item one. Count Dracula appears to have lived in his ancestral castle for some centuries now. Despite his unnatural long life, he maintains an almost youthful vigour. Witnesses have remarked on his alarming pallor and blood-red lips. Item two. The peasants surrounding the castle are deathly superstitious. And, it seems, with good cause. Their children are regularly snatched away and never seen again. Item three. Every person or business who has allowed themselves to be associated with Count Dracula has been afflicted by some terrible misfortune. Item four. Since the Count's arrival on our shores, our own city has seen a spate of children vanishing. Many of those same children have since reappeared. More than one parent has described a mysterious incision on their child's throat and a sickly demeanour. Item five. The walls of a local zoo have... I give up. Must I spell this out for you, sir? We are in league with ungodly forces. For the good of our souls, we must sever our connection with Count Dracula. Deepest concern, James Andrews. <laughs> From the desk of Wilfred Candy, Esquire, dated the 30th of September, 1897. My dear James, I must apologise. The note you left on my desk this morning appears to have fallen, unread, of course, into the fireplace. A Hastily compiled folder was also destroyed in this accident. Please don't trouble yourself to rewrite either document. I fancy they were related to a trivial incident that will resolve itself in due course. May I inquire as to the health of your beautiful wife? Your uncle has informed me that the enchanting Millicent is expecting twins. Truly a blessing to a young husband. I am certain that the four of you will prosper, thanks in no small part to your diligent work at Mitchell, Sons and Candy. And, just as your uncle was good enough to recommend you to us upon his retirement, 
There will be a place in our firm for your children, should they be called to this most noble of professions. <laughs> I do not doubt that our humble business will still be flourishing when that day comes. We are a family business of long-standing, with a great many loyal clients. As your uncle often liked to remark, a rich man makes a good client, but a loyal man is better. Best of all, of course, is a rich man whose loyalty can be expected to continue for a good long time. <laughs> Especially one whose eccentric lifestyle may lead him to pay a generous sum for the kind of ramshackle outhouses that wouldn't merit a second glance from another gentleman of his rank. Such clients are like gold dust. We must do everything in our power to retain their confidence. I must caution, however, that gentlemen of this calibre expect their loyalty to be rewarded. We respect our client privacy in this firm and would never dream of prying into their personal circumstances. It would be unconscionable, for example, if one of my clerks were to betray, for example, <laughs> Count Dracula's trust. Utterly unacceptable. I should insist that such a clerk make a full confession to the Count himself. And no doubt the Count would deal with the treacherous young ingrate in whatever manner he saw fit. I do hope that such a course of action won't be necessary. The Count is a good and generous man, but I'm told his temper is fearsome. Thank you again for your loyal service. <laughs> now that this unpleasant business is behind us, May I suggest that we take lunch together at my club at a time convenient to you to discuss your prospects with Mitchell, Sons and Candy. Warmest regards, Wilfred. <laughs> From the desk of James Andrews, senior filing clerk at Mitchell, Sons and Candy legal practice dated the 1st of October 1897. Dear Count Dracula, I hope this message finds you well and you're settling comfortably in at your new home. Piccadilly is quite beautiful in autumn, don't you think? I'm writing on behalf of the legal firm of Mitchell, Sons and Candy, where I have the honour of working as a senior file clerk. The firm is delighted to report that the deeds to the six mansions you recently purchased have been filed and completed. You are now the holder of a thousand-year lease in six of London's most sought-after locations. Mitchell, Sons and Candy looks forward to providing you with an efficient, discreet service. We hope this is the beginning of a long and mutually beneficial partnership. Please do not hesitate to let me know if you have any questions or requests. I have only recently begun my legal studies, but I expect to advance in my career within a few years, and I've no doubt that for a man of your vast experience of the world, a few years is a very short time indeed. <laughs> I remain, good sir, at your indefinite disposal. Yours faithfully, James Andrews.
So, we're going to have a short break of about 15 minutes, after which we will have the famous Infernal Liars League quiz. There are five books, five books to be won after our interval. So, you'll be back here about 20 to 9, that'd be fantastic. See you then. Thank you. Uh, but first, the famous Infernal Liars League Literary Quiz. Ooh. I think we can do better. We can do better than that. Go on. Come on, yes! Oh my God. Fantastic. So we have five books. Katie, which books do we have tonight for our audience to win? Oh, so many. Due to an ordering error, we have two copies of the Hoxton Street Monster Supplies Cookbook, and I have to read some recipes, so please, Clamorous Assistant. Everyday recipes for the living, dead, and undead, including clotted blood pouches. Printed upside down. Giant beanstalk chutney, sweet and spicy children's tongues, mm, delicious. That's the best place for them. And beloved family pet pie. <laughs> Cook them if you dare. Um, some of our other special prizes are the number one Sunday Times bestseller, Stuart McBride's Now We Are Dead, a terrifying thriller. Uh, the Guardian says skillful storytelling, strong characterization, both intriguing and engrossing. And the tagline is revenge is a dangerous thing. You like your thrillers? Uh, the Killing, little known televisual drama. I don't know if anyone caught it on the more obscure channels. This oh, no. is the book of seven, the Killing. Seven hundred pages worth. Cheaper than a box set. Uh, so, yeah, if you like The Killing, you'll like the novel by David Hewson, presumably. And if you haven't seen The Killing, answer our question. And finally, perhaps the starriest star prize of all, it is the award-winning Liars League anthology of weird, spooky, bizarre, horrific fiction, Weird Lies. And if you're not lucky enough to win a copy, or clever enough, frankly, then you can buy them for the tiny price of only five pounds and make a marvellous spider stuffer, I suppose you might say. Uh, for Halloween, just give them out to any child who comes trick-or-treating, and I promise they will run away screaming. <laughs> so those are our books. Fantastic. So, we have five questions. We need to delve deep into your literary minds. So, our first relates to the title of tonight. So, which witch in Macbeth says double, double... Oh, hang on. Wait a minute. <laughs> I've forgotten something. What, um, I think we need a kind of a... Oh, yeah. A what call. are we going to call for... We don't want people to just raise their hands, but I can't see. It's almost so impossible maybe to maybe see. Maybe we can say, woo! <laughs> Spookiest you know ghost sounds. Okay. okay, so let's just practice that. So, one, two, three. <laughs> Spot on. Excellent. Okay, and judges rules final over who it is. So, uh, which witch says, 
double, double toil and trouble. Well, the, the, the name of the character? Cat. Which of the three witches says <laughs> double, double <laughs> toil and trouble? <laughs> Go on, okay. Yeah. Which two? <laughs> <laughs> well, he is right, because it's in fact all of them. So I was going to Would you like? Um, I'll, I'll go for the star prize, go on. Oh yeah, fantastic. Ooh. Enjoy. Excellent Ooh. choice, sir. Enjoy. I'm a bit worried about this now. I thought this was going to be the easier question. Um, you started with a trick question. And so, dub- this trick is not a trick question. Yeah. Not a trick question. Um, double, double, toil and trouble. What's the second line? Ooh, oh, yes. <laughs> Indeed it is. is. Well done. I would be shocked if this lady didn't know it because she's written horror stories for us before. Um, what do you like? Uh, Why not? Enjoy. Nutritious and terrifying. And of course, if you really wanted the cookbook, you've got more opportunities. So, <laughs> um, so now, in the, uh, who wrote the novel set in the troubles? The Milkman. Oh, it's just called Milkman, I believe. Yeah. And the Burns. Excellent. Oh. Oh, yeah. I think that was the last Which book would you like? The second one you mentioned. Okay. The oh the um, thriller. Now we are dead. That's it. Now, now we are dead. dead. To play for. Okay. Question easy one. Okay, this this might be easier. That's why um, it's called the Infernal Book Quiz. Might be, might be easier. Um, Agnes Nutter is a witch in which nineteen ninety. Whoa, whoa, whoa! At the back. Good omens, indeed. Good well omens. Done. Very good. Well done. What can we get you? This is particularly suitable, actually, as you'll find out from the last question. To win this, which Scandi crime author recently reimagined Shakespeare's Macbeth as a novel? Was that Channel 4 programme, wasn't it? It was. It was. No, as a novel. It was. It was on Channel 4. Was he on Channel 4? Do you know his name? Absolutely not. That's kind of what we're looking for. <laughs> I think at this point... I mean, half a point. You could try famous Scandi crime authors. Anybody. Not Henning Mankell? No, not Henning Mankell. It was on Channel 4. Oh, okay. BBC 4. BBC what was that? Stig Larsson. Not Stig Larsson? It was on BBC, BBC 4. No. Have no, we, we got, got a novel. Have we got a spare? Joan Lisbon. Joan Lisbon. Yes. 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 three stories to go, and we have three actors, fantastic actors, waiting in the wings to tell you some brilliant tales. The first of which is The Burning Boys by John Hayes. John studied at the National Film and Television School 
was nominated for a Royal Television Society Award, then became a screenwriter and won the BBC Writers' Room. He's obsessed with storytelling, loves to write horror and comedy, and often gets up on stage and makes people laugh. He also loves cats. The story will be read by Zach Harrison, who trained at St Mary's University and since graduating has been working on both stage and screen. Stage roles include Caturian, the Pillar Man, Erpingham, the Erpingham Cat, and Demetrius in Midsummer Night's Dream. Film credits include Harry, the cunning linguist, in Shakespeare's Diaries, be careful after a pint uh, reading that, and uh, Jack in I Kissed a Boy, and Alex in Z Positive. So, Zach, come on. The Burn Boys by John Hayes. There's a small town buried in the California desert where boredom can be fatal. Maybe 10,000 people total live there, battling the constant enemies of 100 degree heat. Dust that clogs and chokes everything in sight. And a landscape that runs from rust colored to burnt umber with not much in between. The locals refer to it as shit town, and I can't say they're wrong. There's not much you can do about the heat or the dust, but the local kids do have a uh, unique cure for the board. Now, during the week, it's quiet because there ain't much you can do except get in each other's business in a half-hearted sort of way and, and work on your car. But as the Friday night approaches, the teenagers start getting real jittery and ornery like a junkie itching for a fix. And arguments spark over nothing at all. No one talks about it. But what they're all feeling is that loose, liquid sensation you get in the pit of your stomach when you get just a little bit too close to the edge of a canyon and you dare yourself to have a little look. Then it's Friday, and as the sun dips under the mountains, turning the desert sand blood red, they all start gathering up in their souped-up cars in the parking lot outside the Stater Brothers. Now, the only ones who argue and bullshit now are the new guys, here for the first time, who have no idea what's coming. You can spot the regulars easy. Now, they're the ones with the hollowed-out eyes who just sit on the edge of their cars, drinking and smoking whatever they got to take the edge off. Cassie Dean shows up around 11, driving that fire-apple-red Camaro she's built so many times, her prints on every bolt. She mooches around, shooting the shit and testing the tension in the air making sure to ratchet it up if it's too low and ease it down a notch if it's getting a little heated. No one mentions Yates Field, even though it's what they're all thinking, because this is Cassie's show now, and without her, it can't happen. Say the wrong thing, and she is gone. Now, those nights are bad. That's when kids drink themselves blind out of pure frustration, and everyone starts looking for someone to blame, that's how Caleb Jacobson got stabbed and nearly bled out in the parking lot. But tonight, everyone is cool. Even the new guys. And when midnight rolls around, everyone holds their breath, waiting for the word. And then it comes. Gonna cruise out on a Yates Field, Cassie announces. <laughs> Who's down? <laughs> now some bitch out 
they pair up and light out and go and find a quiet spot where two bodies can get personal and safety. Then there's that you with that itch that sex just won't scratch, who climb in their cars, spark the engines, and follow Cassie's Camaro up the River Ridge Way, past the burned-out buildings on Yates Road and out onto the charred fields beyond. Now you gotta time it just right, so you hit a certain field at a particular time. And the only person who can do it for sure is Cassie. Now it took her months to figure out exactly when and exactly where you gotta be to get them running. But it's not just that. There's something else she does when she's found that spot. It's some kind of ritual, but she don't share that information with anybody. Tonight, we hit that big top field just as the moon clears a thick bank of clouds and lights up the corn. It sways, listening, or maybe watching, as Cassie walks out in the burnt-out clearing in the center of the field, waving at us to stay out till she's done. She kneels, and I see her take a box from her pocket and open it, and she takes something from it that ribbons. Then she does something to it, and I can't see exactly what, and then it's over. She stands and faces all us possibles, lined up at the edge of the field, and she walks back, big shit-eating grin on her face. Now, the first person she comes to is my girl, Kayla. First date, Cassie asks. Well, it was either this or a movie, Kayla asks, says, playing off real cool. What kind of movies do you like? <laughs> Scary ones. Kayla replies, the scarier the better. Cassie's eyes glitter. She turns to me and says, I need blood. They'll like that if they catch you. But if they don't, she trails off and I follow her eyes as they roam over Kayla's curves. Be a hell of a first date. I try and hide my nerves by sparking a joint. It don't work. You gonna bitch out again? Cassie challenges me as I cough out smoke. <laughs> Try me, I reply, hoping Kayla doesn't catch the slight tremor in my voice. Cassie smiles and then turns to the next possible as I hand Kayla the joint. She takes a hit and listens to Cassie mess with the guy, but I don't bother paying attention because I know decisions have already been made. I'm racing tonight, no matter what. Ten minutes later, I slide in behind the wheel, and I don't look at Kayla next to me, because if I do, she'll see how scared I am. Now, I ease the car into the field and let it jog across the ruts and past Cassie, who's walking back to the edge to walk. And then I hit the middle of the field, and I rev the engine. Nothing. So I rev it again, harder, and I spin my wheels, making that rear end fishtail, tearing it up as the field to provoke the inhabitants. Kay was looking around, hoping to spot something. Don't waste your time, I tell her. You can't see him head on, only in the mirrors. She stares at me, then fixes her gaze on the big rear view that I had mounted special. It's so big, practically widescreen, so when she stares into it, hoping to see something. <coughs> this is bullshit, right? She asks. But before I can reply, something rustles in the corner way off on the right, and I don't wait. I just drop that shifter in the first, and I bury the big pedal. The car's pointed forward, 
at the far edge of the field, away from Cassie and the others, and it leaps forward with a roar as Petrol explodes deep in its gut, kicking us forward. My heart's pounding because I can hear them hissing and screaming in the corn as they run for us. Kayla's hollering at me, but she can't see anything, but I know they're almost on us. I can feel that heat rising. And then in the rear view, I see them. The burning boys. They explode from the corn, spitting fire, screaming and hissing, long arms and fingers reaching as their twisted, burning legs pump, trying to catch up to us. We woke them, and now they're coming. Dozens of them, all burning, all hungry, all dead. The race is on. I don't see nothing, she yells at me, staring out the back window. Check the rear view, I yell back. You can't see him by looking straight on. And that's all she gets, because I'm focused on keeping the wheel straight as it bucks out of my hand. I pour on all the speed I can, because they're catching up. And the rising heat's making my heart pound so hard I can feel that sharp stabbing pain in my left arm. Kayla's screaming, because she's got her eyes locked on that big rear view, and I can see them. Burning boys catching up. I can hear them hiss and scream. And she knows everything I told her is true. And if I mess up, if they catch us, we'll burn too. The speedos move touching 50, and I'm starting to panic because them boys can't really move. They're rotting our ass and fixing to catch us. And if they do, they will school us on the dangers of waking the restless dead. Be cool, I tell myself, even though it's got to be touching 100 degrees in there. Be Cool, I say again, and I try and ignore Kayla, who is bellowing in my ear. So we're hitting 60 in the middle of the field at midnight, surrounded by wild corn so high, I can't see a damn thing beyond the two round ovals of my headlights. Now what I know is the ground's treacherous with potholes, tree stumps, and rocks, and I'm praying I didn't drink or smoke too much to handle this shit. Randy Delacroix flashes into my mind. That big mouth asshole who tried to run with the boys last summer and flipped that sweet pickup of his into the corn and burned. Kayla's yelling at me to go faster because she can see him gaining, and I risk a look in the rear view, and I wish to God that I had because they're almost on us, and I swear the one at the very front is Randy. It's cool, I tell myself. This is how it goes. It don't matter how fast you drive or how well you know the ground. The burning boys always gain. This is their place. But I know, I know, I judged it right. I know we'll make it to the edge before they catch us. And then I hear the sharp sound of thin fingers scratching at the paintwork on my left. And I feel a blast of heat on my side of my face, so intense it makes me wince. I snap a look right into the rear view and see the burning boys all along the car. They are drooling fire as they claw at the paintwork. Their fingers burning, scoring deep ruts in the metal. There's no way to be them. They're all around us, and oh, sweet Jesus, I scream. They're itching in front. Randy's burning head leers at me, and he's not alone. Jester boy, Marcus Weaver, and Cassie's little brother, Jonah, are all there, screaming as they burn, running with the rest of the boys, and I finally give in to the pack, because I know now that in a heartbeat they'll be in front of us, and we'll be joining them. I fucked up. Front end lifts, and we are flying. I holler at Kayla, 
that we made it as the low earth bank that marks the border of Yates Field, the one the burning boys can't get beyond, picks us up and throws us out of that corn. My teeth clack down hard enough that I taste blood and the wheels slam on the cracked tarmac of the River Ridge Road. But we're still going 60. At the edge of the road is honest, for I can even think straight. I stamp on them brakes and wrestle the wheel hard left, praying that I can get the car under control before I flip it. It's close, but hell, tonight's our lucky night. And the brakes bite down, smoke squealing from them tires. And we lay about ten feet of rich black rubber on that cracked road before we finally shudder to a halt. We made it. I look in the rear view of the Yates Field just in time to see them dance in flames and the burning boys disappear in the corn. They're gone, I tell Kayla, who's in shock in the passenger seat. We made it. I look out the window and I see the stars overhead are sharper and more perfect than ever. I take a deep drag of the air and it tastes sweeter and more wholesome than I can remember. Then Kayla is on me, her hands tearing at my Levi's and I realize I am sporting a regular railroad spike. She frees me as I tear off her clothes, ripping her pants off, clawing at her like she's clawing at me. And then I'm inside her for the first time and it is good. And I know even as we fuck, that we'll both be back next Friday, because this is living. Thank you. Thank you, Our next story in the second half is Quatico by Jennifer Gabry, read by Katie Darby. Jennifer is a speculative fiction writer and volunteer instructor with an MFA in creative writing, fiction, and an MA in English literature. She facilitates the teen science fiction and fantasy workshop and the adult writing program at her local library in Pioneer Valley, Massachusetts. Katie won the Ronnie Swartz Scholarship to Oxford School of Drama and has appeared in over 30 productions in Oxford, London, and Edinburgh. She's a novelist and short story writer director of Liar's Knee, and has directed several fringe plays, including Time Out Critics' choice comedy, Dancing Bears. She prefers backstage obscurity, of course, but sometimes, thankfully, steps into the limelight. Whitaker, by Jennifer Gabori. In our language, we have this word, wataiko, which means cannibal. One who eats not literally the flesh and blood of another, but who eats the life of another. Jack Davis, Professor of Native American Studies, University of California. The wire quivers. The wrists and ankles flick. The head jerks upright. The arms rise. The legs dump. The string winds round the world, conducting ten billion bodies and me. 
black holes open in our palms. A thin blue line manifests where our mouths used to be. We no longer speak. We reach. We eat. Consumption consumes us. But didn't it always? She doesn't look at me when she groans through stitched lips. Her ghosted eyes rove over racks of clothes as she pulls down ten articles at a time, the tongues of her palms slavering over the fabrics, the teeth in her hands cribbing the hangers. When I run my hand down my jumper and jeans, the jewel forms a hoarfrost sort of lacquer, like a dry hound lick. I've spotted designer boots. I leave her swimming in a pile of cashmere cardies. Sixty stilettos later, we wander into each other between shots. She rummages uninvited through my bags and I through hers, laying down tracks of saliva. He joins in out of nowhere. We nibble and gnaw at the contents of his bags. Sixteen jackets, six sets of trainers, a flat screen, the latest games console, a cellular watch in every colour. They're set to Greenwich Mean Time. That means nothing to us. Time is nothing to us. His mobile chimes and he slides his hand across the screen. A sell-off advert appears. Bargains abound and he rushes away with us so close on his heels we're like sweaty cling film but he's ambivalent to his shadows. Six thousand pounds and as many items into our spree and we're sated for the moment. We must be. We simply can't carry any more without additional arms. The slobber with which it's all slickened makes it that much heavier. I'm unbalanced. A bag of cosmetics in one hand a bag of exercise equipment in the other. I don't know why I bought so many lipsticks, lip glosses, lip liners, lip tints, lip stains when my gobstone shot. I don't know why I bought so many pairs of heels when I only have the one pair of feet. I don't know why I bought dumbbells. <laughs> you are what you buy. I put down my bags to pull out my bejeweled mobile. Not Diamante, diamonds, mm. and text her how many pairs of earrings for one pair of ears, etc. Et <coughs> she puts down her bags within bags, leather first sale, and stows her handbag in one of her shopping bags and texts back, don't be daft. I'm knackered. That's never happened during a shop. Both our mobiles ding at once. He's just forwarded us a discount flyer. I text, cheers, and off we go like piss artists to an opera license. <laughs> Shopping is the new hunting gathering. In seeking, we're a new brand of salt. We have to buy rucksacks to put our purchases in because evolution is fobbing us off with regard to arms. We need more. <laughs> we always need more. Always. We take the usual route back. Past queues of shops with people loitering or living outside on the pavement. I never noticed them before. The people. All the buildings between the shops. 
prisons mainly, where debts are worked off. One run-down shelter that shut its doors. An ugly little boy and girl play outside it like they don't know it's closed. Mostly people just pay, one way or the other. One journo said, as for Parliament's ruling against relief, tornado is a kind of Kansas. We clatter back to our 600 square metre flat, clamber over the wall of bric-a-brac, an objet d'art yesterday's hall, and for some forgotten reason, six spare tellies, and dump our loot onto the floor, or rather, the furnishings already cluttering the floor. We climb through a menagerie of rolled up rugs and tapestries and carpets into a galley kitchen that's more a galleria of unused appliances. We're not sure why it's here, but we like collecting applicable things to fill the space. I can't find a place for my new art prints. The walls are completely papered by the same. And by clocks, all tick-talking. Time to find a bigger flat. <laughs> we work 300 hours a week between us, so we should be able to afford it. I love my new linens to the bedroom in the meantime. This mauve quilt matches my new lip liner exactly. <laughs> I'm not entirely certain why I purchased so many wrinkle creams. Oh well. That's my 60s set and sorted. Well done, me. Better to have and not need than need and not have. She follows me in, dragging a mesh tote full of party-coloured nail varnishes. I text her, you bought 16 blues? She texts back, sky blue, bay blue, arctic blue, royal blue, navy blue, powder blue, true blue, midnight blue, periwinkle blue, phthalo blue, tori blue, indigo blue, blue, angel blue, cerulean blue, angel Gabriel blue. <laughs> I text back, brilliant, and grin at her like I'm thick. It's a wonky sensation smiling, like a hanger's in my mouth. I stop. She spills a bag, sequined clutches onto my bed. She can't get into her room, they have got a pile of stuff blockading it. All of it supported by the column of a grandfather clock. Time to invest in another storage locker. A ferret through the yellow polishes, ranging from ochre to neon, with names like Back in Flats, Golden Girl, Material World, Midas, Radioactive, then the purples, Ultraviolet, Mulberry Wine, Lady in Lavender. Time of the lilacs, plummy mummy, <laughs> and the reds. Maroon six, frankly scarlet, red letter, infrared, cherry bomb, bloodshot, great fire of London, ready steady. <laughs> I start wondering why anyone would buy a nail polish in the shade bubonic. <laughs> I never wondered that before. Why anyone would buy it? It's the International Economic Defense Initiative, IED. It started in the US and whirlwinded across the UK and abroad. We need you to defend our flagging economy. The BBC ran buy or die news items predicting the end times. 
The papers forewarned what the New York Times called a fiscal apocalypse. <laughs> Hoarders <coughs> read things like, earning nothing? You're a tosser. Spending nothing? You're a tosser. <laughs> Quite sure some cheeky American came up with that one after typing British slang into <laughs> We all remember the headline, Yank Breaks Bank. And the cartoon of a caricatured head with a dollar bill for moustache, kind of Basil Fawlty meets Pancho Villa. We took the piss out of them. They pissed down our backs and told us it was raining. And when it pisses, it pours. She's unpacking a floral holdall full of scented lotions and paraffin candles and bath salts and body sprays. Naturally, I have to smell the lot as she hands them to me. Tahini, bikini, mmm, nutty. Sex in the settee. Oh, it actually does smell naughty. <laughs> After soying to the world, which smells nothing like a happy Christmas, I lose interest. That's never happened before. Need air. I text. She texts, what for? I shrug and scale the mountain range of my bed and squeeze past the furniture for the door. He stops me. He texts, F-C-U-K-U? Autocorrect inverts this a bit. Never mind that we just cleared out French Connection yesterday. He stashed all his high street gear in the shelving units we installed last night after a home makeover show inspired binge. Normally, I'd be tempted to fetch the mess down and maul it. But suddenly, everything tastes the same. He shoves me a little. Need air, I text. Nutter, he texts back with two greasy grimaces. Autocorrect doesn't edit what he texts next. Wanker, I say with my eyes. I leave up flat, sucking hard. Through my nostrils, my lips try to cup themselves on my teeth like a tin opener, the better to breathe. I put my palms out, but the mouths just gum, bone idly, absorbing nothing of what I need. Below me, there's nothing but car parks, abandoned trolleys, tarmac and breeze blocks like tiny block islands. The scaffolding of a shopping centre in progress. Nothing but fury and flames from the motorway. I suction harder through my nose, like, like the new Hoover we bought last week because it was marked down 60% and so we positively had to have it. And I have one of those horrible impulses, the sort where you know you're about to have a massive cock up on your hands, but you just don't S-E-U-K in care. I sprint back into the flat, grab bubonic and, and smear the black polish over my mouth. It's the goo, the hue, the pungent odor of marmite. I paint a runny barcode, then drop the bottle. It shatters, splatters its contents over my sparkly Manolo Blahnik's and run my palms over my lips. At least they weren't my Christian Louboutins of the signature red soles. My hands bite my face. It's, it's like a shark attack. 
They chew a bloody crater. Crusts, pusses, dribbles. Looks a little less dodgy every day. I don't go to hospital, not even the local surgery. I find a use for the balaclava collecting dust in the cupboard under the stair. Buy a cream from the chemist. Watch two shoppers ahead of me collapse under all the things they carry. Shite, balmy, but buys herself a woolly hat in every style and shows them to me. Heatex, satifiable, and comes back with half the shop. In private, I paint my new lips ruby red and smack them together, speaking for the first time. Suddenly, the eye of the storm shuts behind me. Suddenly, life is in three strip technicolor. Almost everything I sell. What can't be sold, I give. What can't be given, I stuff in bin bags, only to find her scavenging through them, him rooting through my rubbish at three in the morning. My flatmates hate my quitting jobs even more than my moving out. I'm devolving into a minimalist layabout, unmotivated to make a difference. I'll become a dullard, she texts me. He doesn't text at all. They don't realise the doll is past. They're still voting to put it there, where all the real things are. I invite them to my new place, but they won't come. There isn't room enough, they say, for their lives, not even for an afternoon. I give her my storage locker and him my estate car, which is much larger than his saloon. I think they call this enabler behaviour. I am, rather. They won't let me be anything else. I walk the old way, past the shops and the prisons and the one shelter with the ugly little boy and girl outside it. She watches workmen unloading her lorry. She peers at the merchandise in next door's window. A third child appears and tries to play with them, but they've since forgotten how. The child turns and waves at me. Like we made them know each other. I wave back because we do. The cavities in my palms are scabbing over. I don't need holes in my hands to save the world. We never did. Right, we have one story left, and this never goes out, by Sophie Bloom, which will be read by Patsy Prince. Sophie studied English at Leeds University and creative writing in various evening classes and writing group, and a writing group. She lives in York and wrote a previous story, Baggage, for Liars League's Halloween edition previously, about a woman haunted by her undead exes. 
Patsy trained at RADA and KCL. Recent film includes The Bad Nun, Mummy Reborn, and Culture Shock. Theatre includes Voices from September, uh, sorry, Voices from September 11th, the old bit, and Swallows, uh, the old fire station theatre Oxford. She also co-hosted Open, a podcast on the women's radio station. Patsy is an ex-lawyer, ex-parliamentary candidate, and ex-hotelier, now excelling at being a bad wife, drinking too much gin, and expanding her collection of millinery. Patsy. Never Goes Out by Sophie Bloom. How to put this? I was looking for a flat and then I found a flat and heaven knows that didn't go so well. 2019 hadn't been a great year anyway. First, I lost my job, then my dog died, then my boyfriend left me for a woman who was literally called Jolene. <laughs> I know it sounds like a country song, but that was the actual order of events. And the worst thing was that our shared flat in Vauxhall actually belonged to my now ex, Johnny. So I had to move out. Except I couldn't afford to live in London anymore because I'd lost my zero-hours contract to HNV. I had six months' worth of savings and no interest in living. No interest in living. So, I decided to move back to Manchester to make the misery last. <laughs> I slept too much, ate too little, took up smoking, made endless cups of tea, which went cold while I stared emptily at the grey, moss-side rain. <laughs> Apart from that, I pretty much wasted my time. <laughs> the dodgy-looking middle-aged guy I sublet the flat from turned up to take the deposit and gave me the keys, and then instantly ghosted me, which was ironic, given what followed. I should have realised that even for an utter shithole, the rent was suspiciously cheap. <laughs> but wallowing in my swamp of heartbreak, I told myself that trouble only came in threes. And besides, I was over to break. I wrongly assumed that fate must be sending me a shaft of sunlight my way, rather than just shafting me again. <laughs> The first weird thing was the junk mail. There was, there's always letters for old tenants in these places. I've lived in enough to know. But however many I've been, they kept coming. And they were all for the same people. Like Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, Master T. Smith, The Smiths, even T. Smith Esquire. I assumed it must be generations of the same family, 
who really needed to sort out their redirection service. But the guy who owned the place was called Travis. And, and there was never anything for him. The second problem was the lamp in the bedroom. Not only did the beige shade have an odd shaped stain, the bloody thing didn't turn off. The, the bulb wouldn't come out and the socket switch was stuck. I tried pulling out the plug but it seemed wedged into the wall. So I gave up and started sleeping on the sofa. Where I spent most of my time anyway. Then the radio went weird. It was dab, sonar, mint. One of the first things Johnny bought me, in fact. But one sharp October morning, it wouldn't pick up any of the normal stations. I skipped from preset to preset, my usual dejection giving way to irritation. Trying magic, radio too. Virgin. <laughs> Even though the music they constantly played said nothing to me about my life. <laughs> Which now consisted mostly of crying in the job centre and stalking <laughs> Jolene on Facebook because Johnny had unfriended me. I looked it between rooms looking for its happy place. But nothing worked. The only frequency it liked now was some throwback station called Retrograde. And every song seemed to be by one of those 80s miserablest bands. The Fall, Depeche Mode, New Order, and Morrissey. <laughs> like really a lot of Morrissey. <laughs> so I turned the radio back on and after a few days, of which there were many. Except now, it wasn't blank anymore. Someone had scrawled red rum across it in blood red paint. Shot, I nearly swallowed my toothbrush, which would have been quite serious as it's electric. 
craning out of the tiny window, I saw the rest of the message. Red rum sai tiam. It sounded like the motto of Hogwarts. But I'd seen the shining so slowly I spelled it out backwards. Meat is murder. <laughs> what sort of vigilante vegetarian would bother graffitiing here instead of the halal butchers opposite? <laughs> Curious, I googled. The first result was a Smith's album and everything finally clicked. Well, sort of. being haunted but I've been too miserable to notice you know how it is when you're depressed every day is like Sunday every day is silent and grey even blatant paranormal activity barely makes you look up other things started to make sense now the endless flyers from local vinyl shops and the vegetarian society the clickbait news alerts on my phone about the queen being dead and riots at Strangeways prison Something, or someone, was reaching out from beyond the veil and doing it via the medium of Morrissey songs. <laughs> but I didn't know what they wanted, and worse, I didn't know how to stop it. So, I decided to try and summon the rest of the spirit the only way I could think of. I gathered all the Smith's letters and flyers and took the radio into the bedroom. I still couldn't turn the bloody lamp off though. So I closed my eyes, tuned the radio to white noise, opened my mouth and sang. The rain falls hard on a humdrum town. This line had come to mean a lot. This line had come to mean a lot to me. I opened one eye but the cosmos remained unmoved. This town has dragged you down. Nothing. I sighed and played my ace. See, the look I've had can make a good girl turn bad. <laughs> Suddenly, the junk mail stirred and the radio white noise rustled ominously. Who's there? I whispered. The lamp dimmed, then brightened like winter sunshine. Staring at it, I realised the random stain was in a shape I recognised. It was like one of those Jesuses people finding pieces of toast, except the face I was looking at was Morris's. <laughs> Through the roaring mist of static, <coughs> I heard a familiar nasal baritone. <laughs> I am the light that never goes out. <laughs> it crooned. Oh my God! It's you! I didn't even know you were dead! <laughs> A hollow sigh 
like the hiss of the ocean in a coastal town that forgot to close down. <laughs> Not quite, the radio said sadly. The body's still out there giving me a bad name. <laughs> I'm just Morris's soul. <laughs> and then he told me a story only slightly more unbelievable than the one you've heard so far. Once upon a time, 40 years ago, an unemployed vegetarian musician called Stephen Patrick Morrisey lived at this very address, got extremely dejected, which was normal, and somewhat drunk, which was rare. Hart saw at the failure of both his punk bands and tortured by a literary ambition which hadn't gone beyond writing a pamphlet about the New York Dolls, he summoned the devil, as you do, and offered to sell his soul. Apparently, someone at the job centre had given him Satan's phone number. <laughs> According to Morrissey, Satan looked like a fat, sweary A&R man interrupted in the act of snorting coke off a toilet seat <laughs> and perhaps inevitably was a scouser. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a gander at the goods then, said the devil, sniffing deeply. All right, it's indecent, Nick. Why are you asking for it? For once in my life, let me get what I want, begged our hero. Lord knows it would be the first time. <laughs> well, what do you want? Said the devil. Name your top three. Number one album, a book deal. He sniggered. World peace. Morrissey liked the sound of them all, except you'd probably create world peace by wiping out humans. So how about world peace? Vegetarianism. No. <laughs> the devil grinned toothily. Why the hell not? I mean, it'll take a few decades, but I bet I can get a, ve a vegan sausage roll into Brex by 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Privately, wondering how a sausage roll could be vegan, Morrissey <laughs> decided to nail down some specifics. The book deal had to be with a big publisher, like Penguin. And it would be an instant classic. <laughs> and he wanted to win an award. No. You're pushing it now, so, grumbled Satan. That all. Morissette couldn't believe his luck. Suckers never can, he told me sadly. He took the devil's razor quill scratched a vein, and signed at the bottom of an extremely long contract. So, do you take my soul now? He asked nervously. No, la, said the devil. You're going to want that to write your songs, ain't you? Don't worry, by the time I come for it, you won't be needing it anymore. The next day, the 19-year-old Morrissey met Johnny Marr at a Patti Smith gig, and the rest, of course, is musical history.
least until the ink dried on a second contract. The one for Morris's much anticipated autobiography, published as a Penguin classic in 2013. It was at that moment his soul told me there was a blinding flash and his body felt a freezing blast chill, like goose pimples inside his heart. Like Christmas alone in a thousand unheated bedsits. And then nothing at all. It was Satan reaping my soul, he explained. But apparently there was no real room in hell apart from more of a prison overcrowding situation. He knows heaven doesn't seem to be my home, so he had to find somewhere else for me to go. He trapped me here in the end. The genius in the lamp. It's a sort of shit joke the devil loves. <laughs> After that, things went rapidly downhill. Morris's soul watched in horror as the music nosedived. Then his empty avatar's terrible novel appeared. It won a prize all right. <laughs> the Bad Sex Award. <laughs> Eliza's breasts barrel rolled across Ezra's howling mouth and the pained frenzy of his bulbous salutation whacked and smacked its way into every muscle of her body. He shuddered. Satan keeps his promises. <laughs> then came the provocative statements, controversial interviews, increasingly right-wing views, retweets of Britain first. I'm shitting all over my own legacy. I have to stop myself, he whispered through the radio, his lampshade face pulsing in agony. And you have to help. Gladly, I said, but if you're stuck here, what can I do? Well, he said, brightening, my body's playing the arena Saturday. Want to go? <laughs> he told me to get some scissors and to trust him. Two minutes later, I was cradling Lamp Morrissey in my arms. <laughs> Electrical cord cut, but miraculously still glowing. I, I felt weirdly like the Virgin Mary in some... <laughs> postmodern Indian nativity, but he modestly explained. I was more like the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem. That was to get right up front, he told me, and when the last song was played and all the phones and lighters came out, I'd pull the lamp from under my jacket and hold him aloft where he couldn't be missed. When the lamplight hits Morris's eyes, his soul will ride the beam back home. At least that's the theory. Who knows if it'll work? But anything's worth a try, he says. If we succeed, I get a job as PA to the newly reunited Morrison. And if we fail, we'll write songs together. He reckons he can't do worse than his body's managing on its own right now. 
and as the devil once said, why the hell not? <laughs> So, um, big thanks from everyone here to our authors, please. There are lots of authors in the audience, so well done. Thank you. Uh, a big thank you to all our actors. Our next event is Sugar and Spice. And the deadline is the 3rd of November. So if you've got some stories, please do uh, share them with us. We look forward to reading them all. All of these will be on the website. Please do share them. Do get your friends to, to listen and read them. And we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much indeed.